Oh, mercy, mercy me. All oh, things ain't what they used to be. No, no. Where did all the blue skies go? Poison is the wind that blows from the north and south and east. Hello and welcome uh, to another episode of Material Analysis, episode 15, Climate Change. Today we are joined by three co-hosts. Apart from myself, Pramod, uh, there's Pink, no, there's Bela. Uh, I always confuse between Bela and Pinky. Sorry to the audience. Uh, there's uh, Chondu and Dilip is back again. So yeah. Hello. Hello. Hi everyone. Say hi everyone. Okay. Anyway, so the thing is, today we are here to discuss a very pressing issue that nobody seems to think is a press- pressing issue. Uh, except for Greta Thunberg, for some reason. I mean, like, basically, this is all fake news, what we're about to discuss anyway. So, we're basically here to talk about climate change, which we, as we all know, is a conspiracy. Um, and basically, people have ideas like, you know, the climate is changing, etc. But then how do we have snowballs? So, let's start off with Dilip, who obviously disagrees with the fact that the very direct fact that this is, you know, a conspiracy, please. Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks, Pramod. I think, like, climate change is the greatest uh, threat to humanity. If you if you have read this sentence, like, before it would have been, uh, you would have thought it was by some leftist UP, but this was the starting line in the Science magazine a um, couple of weeks back, which is, like, one of the most important magazines for peer-reviewed uh, research. And... What is obvious about climate change is that the evidence for anthropogenic warming is actually unequivocal, uh, which uh, says the IPCC, which means that the human uh, activities are causing uh, climate change or driving up global warming is something that is uh, beyond debate, that has been settled. There is more than 95% probability that it is obviously us we are causing this. And how we are causing this is that by after industrial uh, revolution, we have actually emitted greenhouse gases such as carbon dioxide, methane or NOx, which actually traps traps heat and then sends it back to earth, which uh, warms it up. So we know that uh, the climate has warmed up uh, the global mean surface temperature to one degree Celsius more than it was in the uh, pre-industrial levels. And uh, to be clear, the GMST, the global mean surface temperature, is different from actual weather. So when you see outside, you see a snowball, it doesn't mean the earth is not warming up because the GMST is measured using sophisticated mechanisms. (laughs) And what we actually also know is that a major part of this warming has come in the past 35 years, which is the kind of the neoliberal acceleration era. Mm-hmm. And we see major effects of uh, what has happened uh, after we have had one degree Celsius warming. So we see that uh, the ice is melting, the Arctic ice is melting a lot, almost like uh, 286 billion tons a year. And then the glaciers are heating, the sea level is actually rising up, the ocean is getting acidified. And then instead of having 280 ppm carbon dioxide in the air, we actually have like 400 ppm of carbon dioxide. So there is is an important body called Interpanel, Intergovernmental Panel of Climate Change, the IPCC, which actually is the, uh, you know, the consortium of numerous scientists who present scientific evidence which are beyond debate. So they don't take the 
research that is happening now. They are pretty conservative in their conclusions, mind you, and they are not, uh, you know, known for hyperbole. So what they actually say is that we have to change the society in the radical and unprecedented manner that has not happened in actual, you know, human history to thwart uh, what we can call as catastrophe. So what they actually suggest is that we have to cut down our emissions, cut down CO2, especially, and also methane and NOx, so that the global mean surface temperature does not go beyond 1.5 degrees Celsius. So they list the benefits of having actually 1.5 degrees Celsius as the top mark and not going to 2 degrees Celsius. So the first question to ask is that we are already at 1 degree Celsius. Does this mean anything? Of course, it actually does. 50% of coral reef in the Great Barrier in Australia has actually completely died off. And if you, if you actually want to know, 25% of marine ecosystems depend on coral reefs and eventually millions of lives are dependent on that. We have three times more marine heat waves uh, due to this. The West Antarctic ice sheet has already melted to a large extent and we are having long and intense fire seasons in the Arctic. So what, what I'm talking is that this is at this particular moment at one degree Celsius. So what actually happens when we go to 1.5 degrees Celsius, this is where you have to also understand what's important to be known as feedback loop. So once you actually have CO2 emissions, which heats up the earth, it eventually actually melts a lot of ice and the ice stores CO2 and then it eventually releases more CO2 into the uh, atmosphere. And then we have more and more heating. This is called as positive feedback loop. So when you have... Uh, uh, warming that you want to limit to 1.5 degrees Celsius. This is why the IPCC is emphasizing about it. If you have 2 degrees Celsius, the heat waves would be 32 times longer than it is in 1.5 degrees Celsius. There will be 93 times more death. So we will have a long, prolonged drought cycle at 2 degrees Celsius. We will almost have 18% of the insects will be gone, 16% of plants will be gone, 8% of vertebrates will be gone, and you will see diseases to an extent that we don't actually comprehend at this point of time. So we'll have a great increase in marine heat waves, and we will have uh, actually an ice-free Arctic summer for every 10 years, starting in 2100, if you actually reach 2 degrees Celsius. And at 2 degrees Celsius, I was telling you at 1, 50% of just the Australian coral reef is gone. At 2 degrees Celsius, the entire coral reef of the world will be gone. So it means 100% of coral reef would be absolutely gone. And then you'll have 2.5 million kilometers of permafrost actually being lost. Which, how does it translate into human cost? The UN says that 400 people will be actually facing acute water scarcity and we will have hundreds of millions of climate refugees. We had 1 million in Syria and we know how it turned out. And then we can go on and on how it will be during for the malnutrition and how much of wildfires it will cost. And of course, like you will have entire um, cities and uh, especially the urban ones completely underwater due to massive flooding. In fact, one of the curious things is that uh, they estimated, especially in this uh, uh, massive review in science that they actually estimated, there will be intense you know, like intense cyclones instead of the usual tropical cyclones. What this actually means is that the intensity and the frequency of these, uh, you know, crazy cyclones would increase, which means the damage that is caused due to these cyclones would be greater than the entire GDP of the island states, which 
for instance, um, you know, Sri Lanka or Bangladesh, which is why one of the uh, representatives from Marshall Islands called it climate genocide. So you can actually understand these have like really grave consequences. So if you want to talk about three degrees Celsius, uh, we don't need to actually talk about three degrees Celsius because the entire of Miami and Jakarta will be underwater. And there will be like 20 times more flooding in India. And, uh, you know, uh, why they, they actually don't even talk about four degrees Celsius anymore. The scientists don't talk about four degrees Celsius because they know it's complete Armageddon. At three degrees Celsius, the entire civilization is at stake. And at four degrees Celsius, we don't even know what, you know, it's, it's going to be much horrible than we can actually imagine. So after telling you all this, I'm just going to say that at the rate of emission that we are going now, business as usual, as they call it, we are going to at least four to five degrees Celsius. Let's start the conversation. Um, can I ask you to elaborate a little bit about what you mentioned about things like cycles? So there's a difference between, say, weather patterns, which tend to shift and then extreme weather events like cyclones, flooding, and so on. What do we say to people who are hesitant to attribute it to climate change entirely? Like for instance, how do you say that something like the cyclone that flattened Bahamas, for instance, right? Um, right, right, right. That's true. So, for instance, whenever we have an extreme weather event, the issue is that uh, the question always rises, is it due to climate change? One, because the we extreme weather events has always happened throughout the history of the Earth. But what we mm -hmm. can say with a lot of certainty is that a lot of these weather events that we are seeing now and what, what we are going to see has a, more, a greater chance to occur simply because we have warmed up the Earth so much. So that we have actually nailed down the evidence. That is, the probability increases much higher due to warming. So we cannot, mm -hmm. let's say, like, one can never say it's entirely correlated. Like, this is like saying, yes. yeah, it's, it's, it's impossible to prove uh, kind of the negative, but we can say with a huge degree of certainty. In fact, I remember in IPCC reports, they, they have different shades of certainty. Like we are certain, we are very certain, we are absolutely certain and so on and so forth like this. So mm. we can say with actually huge degree of certainty that these things can be correlated directly to climate change, especially the extreme weather events. Right. Right. Uh, I have a question. Uh, so, you know, in some, a lot of people basically object to concern about climate change by, I mean, the ones who are, you know, a little more scientifically minded than upright denialists. They say that natural climate change has happened throughout Earth's geological history, right? And we have had scenarios in which, you know, the mean surface temperature was much higher than it uh, is at present. Right. And, uh, you know, so and life went on, etc. And a lot of people would argue that human technology can, for instance, compensate with that, right, for, can compensate for that, for instance. So and and like, for instance, the point you're making regarding coral reefs, because I've actually seen people making the argument that, you know, people are saying that, you know, there'll be massive reef extinction throughout the world. Mm. Uh, but they'll point out that, you know, in the past, the earth was warmer. And corals have been uh, kind of like been there for millions and millions of years, right? Through these periods. So how would someone answer that? And how is this different? Yeah, for, for the reef, I think there is plenty of evidence by now. Because like the, 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 uh, this is one of the important things and I think like difficult things to model. Because like if you actually model uh, the coral reefs uh, dying, you would see that they remain 
pretty healthy up until the point, up until what they call as the tipping point, after which they completely die. Mm-hmm. So when they try to actually model these research, when they try to actually understand through experiments, those things are clear to them. Uh, at least from the you know the giant reviews, it seems that it is completely clear to them that at two degrees Celsius of warming, it would be enough for the coral reefs to actually completely right. die. So, but uh, in, right. in terms of like whether or not we we are we have had uh, you know like yeah we have had ice ages before, we have had extreme weather events before, but the thing uh, with climate change is that we are talking about the collapse of ecosystems, that's why they call it as like the sixth mass extinction event, because I think like we have having 140,000 species that is dying like every uh, few months or so. So these things we are actually completely seeing by now. And we are also seeing that the reproductive patterns have completely shifted and the entire marine ecosystems uh, are, uh, and even uh, for the vegetation to to an extent is shifting to higher latitudes and uh, sorry, higher altitudes. So these are all already an indication of what's what's going to happen and you know like we as a human civilization we are built upon this uh, way that we are located we we build our uh, complete civilization near ports near cities near oceans you know we are completely concentrated in those zones and then we we have built our entire uh, civilization so when we have at, you know, like literally at four degrees Celsius, we cannot in some places in huge swaths of our population, uh, huge swaths of area, we can not actually go out and then we cannot take the heat wave anymore. There mm-hmm. will be places which are completely uninhabitable. And yeah, right, those, like for yeah, central those India, points, for like, instance. Yes, and, and huge <laughs> portions in uh, Africa. And then when they talk about like, you know, like in previous ice ages or whatever the, the time they had, like they are not taking into calculation so many things like for instance what would happen mm. when at three degrees celsius 50 percentage of crops die mm. how are we going to uh, how are we actually going to feed populations mm. and what will happen like when we have extreme fire events and massive flooding like mm. there are parts that are going to be underwater there are parts that are going to be uninhabitable like we we kind of live in a society and we live it we live it now so we have to think from now or like after we have like evolved until this point to what will happen uh, when right. we have steam bombing. Um, one more thing is that we are completely unprepared to deal with it. Um, so uh, the thing is, uh, Chondu has been remarkably silent. Do you want to weigh in? Um, yeah, I mean, okay, there are a couple of things I would want to state here. First of all, I think it's necessary to address the like, because Dilip has essentially talked about facts. He has talked about the scientific consensus. He has talked about what we face in fairly sterile terms. And I think uh, the problem is that while the literature, the scientific literature on uh, climate change has been fairly consistent, its arc of development has been fairly consistent, and those of us who read it have a fairly decent idea of what we face, The problem is that the politics of climate change is something we need to focus on because um, a lot of Mm. what has been discussed yet by Dilip, it has not translated to the public for various reasons. Mm. And even in in cases like, uh, uh, for example, Greta Thunberg's activism, a lot of this does not translate. A lot of common people, for example, do not understand... uh, what climate change entails. Um, 
like i remember in my conversations with uh, some people who are not in the sciences uh, essentially humanities too who got interested in this topic and i was talking with them and one of them said hey can't we like build large walls across the coasts and thus protect bombay and uh, and this is these are not climate deniers or reactionary people or uh, you like, know why don't we netherlands why don't we like netherlands ha, why, why don't we do what netherlands did right and you shouldn't mock such questions outright because they come from a very sort of hollywood bollywood based understanding of what climate change is you know these people probably saw a day after tomorrow or such movies in which climate change is this sudden gigantic titanic force of nature and the ocean creeping in etc etc but what they don't understand and what what i think we need as a podcast to clarify uh, quite uh, plainly is that this would be a systemic failure of sorts uh, and because civilization as you guys have pointed out uh, exists and has not we live in a society haha but uh, one of the uh, prime aspects of human civilization is its requirement of certain systems being complex within themselves you know complexity has a characteristic and a merit of its own so certain environmental systems for example uh, you can't replicate them because they are so complex and if they be damaged at some point a cascade effect will start which will damage something else like remember these uh, Uh, really publicity stunt like things where indian government says we have planted a billion trees and then the pakistani government says oh we have also planted a billion trees and then it becomes this dickwaving contest and everybody who knows anything about uh, forestry etc would tell you that this is all nonsense because the number of trees really don't matter here and you know it's like they are young saplings and you can't replace a complex mm-hmm. forest ecology which you have deforested by like planting a billion saplings that's not how it works because a they are they don't get enough resources or trees and b uh, like they they are just saplings and this this is the same for urban ecology this is the same for the sort of complex uh, stuff within our human society like transportation etc uh, we have seen like to explain climate change to people i often use the uh, analog of wars you know mm. that often the damage caused during an invasion is not because of the direct killings by the enemy force it's that some vital part of society stops functioning which leads to this utter chaos in which people start dying due to seemingly small things like uh, dysentery for example right. or or infections right so when we are talking about climate change it's very necessary that the audience understands that you will not die because the oceans would come and swallow you up of course that will happen in a lot of low lying coastal areas and that But will also not be like a, that will also it's also important point that it's a gradual process it's not yes, something that happens not one day like so giant tsunami yeah, comes and you know you're suddenly underwater but yeah so you were thinking like why can't we build walls or you know why can't we use this like this is a this is a thing i've actually heard from phd students unfortunately like somebody was like oh the temperatures would increase why can't we use that to start cultivating crops in like the tundra region yeah actually there was a, 
actually interestingly that was a serious suggestion that semi serious suggestion that some scholars actually who were paid by if i recall correctly they were paid by a few fossil fuel companies to suggest yes, yes, that yes yes mm. so there is a lot of misunderstanding here and you know there is this phrase uh, you guys have also probably heard this that if somebody's paycheck depends on them misunderstanding certain things you would be damn sure that they would misunderstand them so uh, what one thing we should caution our audience is beware of these simplistic solutions you know mm-hmm. the sort which says ah oh temperatures would rise at certain place oh we will get more fish population so we'll all eat fish or oh we will build these giant netherlands like dikes across the across the oceans and all because you know when you will have these cyclones etc which dilip was mentioning it's not that it's only the coastal regions which get affected when you have massive crop failures happening that will lead to a cycle which will lead to not just immigration but internal internal migrations of large large population yeah. towards safer yeah. and uh, highland areas and we do not have especially india because we as a country have never concentrated on uh, welfare you know we don't have the social buffer needed when when this starts and that leads to another topic which i want to talk about later in today's episode which is ecofascism but there is a lot to discuss before we go there so yeah uh, be, be, before but, somebody uh, else picks up i will just give one example before somebody else picks up there was a uh, article in journal nature climate change where they wanted to quantify 1.5 degrees versus 2 degrees like their conclusion was 150 million people worldwide would die from air pollution at 2 degree so you you can't build walls for that mm. right and another thing is for instance like you know if you're talking about rising sea levels like so something that we are starting to see in parts of bengal etc with sea levels rising um, and the fact that uh, dilip mentioned earlier is that our populations are tend to be concentrated along the coastline except for here it's around the gangetic belt we're going to see salination of water and that is going to basically mess with your crop production we are basically starting to see it in certain mm. parts of the sundarbans which were extremely fertile regions uh, but with you know creeping climate change creeping uh, you know the tides becoming each year you know the islands start uh, getting and you know you're starting to see uh, you know saline water coming in and crops starting to fail in these areas and i mean it's like you know it happens very gradually over the span of years and decades and people don't really notice it right i mean like if you ask someone who's lived in say the 1950s like you know there are certain parts of india like for instance people will say that if you lived in say shillong in meghalaya they'd say that yeah the winters here used to be much colder it's much warmer in shillong than it is it was 50 years back but could you tell on a year by year basis that you know shit sorry i was just going to say that one of the things that i have found particularly frustrating is sometimes the the stress i mean i i get this a lot from younger people who suddenly may, you know confronted with the data these scenarios which seem very doomsdayish when you're like to 18 to 21 and you really think that you know there's so much you want to do in the world and the world itself is at peril um and the immediate uh, response because we live in a very neoliberal moment is to start moving towards individualized consumption patterns right saying go vegan consume less plastic make sure your office is clean 
you know, maybe don't print out as much as you should, use less paper or use paper instead of plastic. Um, and a lot of these solutions are obviously adopted by corporations um, and organizations that are trying to get green credentials and so on. Now that actually climate change has become part of the discourse and you know that you have to reduce carbon emissions. Um, some of these some of these changes that they're recommending, um, I think, seem very progressive, but at, at some point, it's the enormity and the scale of change required at this current moment, I think, is something that actually misses a lot of people. Uh, and I'm not trying to say that veganism is useless or that it's irrelevant. Um, I think at some point, all of our consumption patterns are going to have to be affected if we want to have that kind of change. But this has to come from a sort of really large-scale structural intervention, right? Um, mm. And I find the the tone deafness often of people trying to make these changes is that they're not actually willing to grapple with how large those changes have to be and realistically speaking how quickly they have to be implemented as well um and this is something i thought that you know particularly speaking from a left perspective um yeah. what is it going to require from us yeah 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 i just wanted to comment so the first thing is that we have, we are on, uh, like, the clock is ticking. So we have, like, 11 years at best. And we have, let's say, I don't know, 400 gigatons of carbon dioxide budget left that we can actually mm -hmm. emit before we actually have 66% of staying within the 1.5 degree Celsius. And mm -hmm. this means, like, cutting our, our, cutting the, you know, the global west, uh, global north emission, almost uh, entirely halting it by uh, 2000, uh, let's say 40, coming to net neutral. But what mm. we see actually is that the CO2 is increasing every year. We are actually putting more and more than we have done in the previous years. So the first thing is that uh, if you actually want to do this, uh, we, we have to know the first fact is the top 10% of wealthy people actually are responsible for the 50% of emissions, whereas the bottom 49% is uh, responsible for less than 10%. So there is a huge gap here. You, you can argue about, like, we, we can put, put the complexities aside for the next uh, next round of talking. So if you actually bring the top 10% of emitters to the global elites emission to the, the emission of average Northern European, which is already pretty high, mind you, we would be cutting down emissions by 33%. So if we if we curb their purchasing power, you'll be you'll be cutting huge amount of uh, emissions, in my opinion. And you know the second thing is that the there is a lot of people, especially the the lobbies, actually actively try to confuse you, taking away you know the simple facts. The the fact of the matter is that we have like more than five trillion dollars of direct and indirect subsidies to fossil fuels every mm. year and we have 780 billion dollars of direct subsidies all over the world to fossil fuels mm. so and right. so for instance one of the things is that when we talk about this these sort of green investments let me let me quote one specific example where they contrast shell and bp and exxon mobil so we have to first of all understand that all of these companies spend at least 400 million dollars in lobbying actually for policies mm. so try to get that number in but before that you have to first of all understand that people contrast like Shell and ExxonMobil and BP. What they say is that these, the Shell is green because of the fact that it has invested in the past uh, a few years, you know, $300 million into, uh, you know, renewable energy. You, mm. If you actually look at it and then you say, oh, $300 million into renewable energy is a lot. No, it's actually not a lot. Their income uh, last year alone was $24 billion. And they have, meanwhile, when they invest in, uh, you know, renewable energy for $300 million, at the same time, they have actually 
started a new uh, you know like a oil digging operation in canada for 2 billion dollars so wow. the the kind of you know the, the the kind of thing that they play to actually hide uh, you know plain facts uh, in in front of our eyes by saying that uh, individual consumption changes are going to need to come these like the, you know like we we are, we are going to change uh, we have to change the consumption patterns if we are serious that we can get to later but first and foremost is that we have a huge lobby a huge multinational industrial complex where they actually actively try to you know like uh, not let us cut emissions we have to understand that 70% of emissions of carbon dioxide is actually from fossil fuels so if you are going to talk about change in fossil fuels we can have a huge dialogue how we want to change but the essential fact remains that it is still being subsidized so we we need to start from there yeah mm. uh, i also think that uh, okay uh, you know often uh, like there is this meme which goes around in left circles that blah blah percentage of the world's pollution is because of these top 100 companies and then of course there is a very valid criticism of that meme that you know oh, but those companies they are producing goods which everybody wants and you know you without demand of say people in usa guzzling fuel for their suvs you know mm-hmm. a lot of those companies won't exist and i think that's a valid criticism however the thing which sort of connects to what dilip is saying is that within capitalism the demand for consumption of various things isn't an organic thing a lot of these companies do spend a lot of money in making certain that demand keeps rising and uh, and i'm not just talking very you know uh, banal level of propaganda i'm saying that you have an entire society which is geared towards these companies prospering in america a country uh, which has studied in some details about transportation and all uh, there were deliberate attempts to kill mass transportation and build cities around essentially highways and yeah. that was made certain by the car law so mm-hmm. uh, like if you don't have a car and you live in some you know suburban area in america it becomes almost impossible to live essentially you, you need to have a car because everybody uses car from simple things like grocery and to uh, reach places there is no public transport because entire designs of cities entire uh, civil engineering philosophies have been designed around the car and hence around fuel so uh, what we have to also understand is that basic things like demand basic things like how certain consumption cultures operate are not things which exist in vacuum and are often shaped by what dilip just called the global elite the top 10% and mm-hmm. often their financial concerns so mm-hmm. if you want to realistically fight this you will have to fight how society operates and yes. and you will have to not just attack uh, you know these companies up front saying that oh we should not give them subsidies and we should pressure politicians not to we have to get their influence out of various kind of lobbying including agricultural lobbying vehicular lobbying uh regulations that you know so for example uh, why does not like right now in india there is this increased thrust year after year to privatize large parts of the public transportation networks the railways etc and people don't 
people don't oppose that because you know a lot of people think that uh, private is better, sarkari is bad, and things like that. But then exactly that's the that's the kind of logical uh, scaffolding which will eventually lead to ideas like oh trains are inefficient and bad let's build more planes and uh, and give them to these cheap flight companies more and more. But as anybody would tell you is that flights are very bad for the environment. And high speed trains are always a better thing to develop than uh, planes. And those are the sort of things which are often not. I mean, yes, sure, they are driven by demand, but then those demands are also socially constructed and capitalism does play a hand in that. So where these large policies are coming from, you have to sort of keep fighting that as well. Before before anybody goes to the other point, I just want to make two simple points. Like when we talk about like, you know, uh, the consumption and, uh, and uh, you know, whether it's global elites or it's just a general consumption, take away all these points, but just to lock this fact in that you know, if you actually take U.S. imperial actions and mm. how they have built their military-industrial complex, that is like a nation-state. I think they are probably at the eighth largest emitter. We can just get get away with this. This this like what what consumption are we talking about here? Even there is nothing to be you know even discussed here when we are actually on schedule for a mass extinction. Even that we want more wars, let alone the wars own uh, you know like uh, ethical issues are there. The second thing is that fashion industrial complex is actually emitting more CO2 than aviation and maritime combined. <laughs> this is something like I got to know very lately. We we all, aviation is an important field. I like no disagreement we need to fly less and we have to actually have a massive regulation over that but fashion just this you know like the the notion of beauty that is constructed into like our discourse it has propelled this massive expansion and then you know more and more waste cloths and then it's completely going into the landfill which actually furthers land acidification and more and more co2 emission this is why I think like there is a lot of role to play, not just, you know, the bourgeois climate change movement, but also, for instance, like the leftist feminist movement who often have to like they, they do and they have to make it central that you criticize the notion of, you know, capitalist con- constructed beauty. Then you add the fashion industrial complex to it and how it operates and how it actually destroys the environment. Right. Right. So I want to like make a certain point over here. Uh, you know, we talk about what industries are responsible and what, uh, you know, percentage of what is being bought. <laughs> but I still think it's important to discuss what are the possible policy options that we have. And the thing is that, you know, we can talk about how, how you know, our cities are constructed in this way, you know, our economy is set up in this way, but this is the hand we've been dealt with. I mean, we don't have any other hand. And within these uh, policy options, one of the probable policy options was obviously that of carbon taxes. Now, when Emmanuel Macron did try imposing carbon taxes in France, that met with almost violent opposition, my massive resistance to that policy. And, you know, I think, you know, it's very important to realize that within the context of the current economic setup, now you can go criticize Macron on a bunch of things and leftists, a lot of leftists have. They said that, you know, maybe you should have bolstered the welfare state, maybe you should have done this, maybe you should have done that. But at the same time, it is also important that just as, you know, we, we're talking about cultural ways of, you know, reducing demand, you know, we're talking about a cultural aspect of reducing demand. The fact mm-hmm. is that if we're talking about 
about any specific policy that is designed to reduce demand, especially demand for, say, fossil fuels, uh, you are going to see a strong pushback against it. And a pushback that, you know, most of us are not, you know, a lot of us can be like, you know, we can even acknowledge the reality of climate change. We might be acknowledging that we need to do something about it, but there is always that question that what, you know, when we actually have to face higher, which is going to happen anyway, right? I mean, like, there is no way that, you know, if petrol prices are cheap, that we'll stop using petrol, right? Mm. Petrol prices need to go up for us to stop using it. If it's, if it's cheap, if it's cheaper than, say, other forms of energy, we will keep using petroleum products. Uh, so it has to go up in price. But once, excuse me. Once that goes up in price, how do we react to that? And the thing is that, you know, as the example of France and France being a first world country with relatively less inequality than, you know, many other societies with a relatively strong welfare state, etc. And you saw this kind of reaction happening in France. And, you know, interestingly, for instance, leftist platforms like the Democratic Socialists of America, the Labour Party, etc. All of them had proposals or, you know, they were discussing this activist groups were discussing carbon taxes or carbon tax prior to what had happened in France. And the moment this happened, the discourse suddenly shifted. The question is that, you know, when, you know, ultimately any sort of policy that will, you know, one thing that people will have to realize is that any sort of policy will happen, it will be about changing consumption patterns. And this is why I'm not very optimistic, you know, as much as, you know, I mean, like, I'd like to think that there's hope. I'm actually not very hopeful that we are headed on anything apart from the business as usual, four to five degrees uh, warming future that, you know, we are headed for. But the thing is, and one of the reasons I think that is going to be the case is that, you know, you can say that, you know, let's hold companies accountable, etc. These hundred largest companies or whatever. But the thing is that at the same time, these things are not just restricted to the hundred largest companies. And more interestingly, in these hundred largest companies that, you know, you kind of have thrown up at you. Many of them are fossil fuel companies, but interestingly, many of them are state fossil fuel companies, right? When these are state fossil fuel companies, like for instance, Saudi Aramco, or uh, for instance, Sinopec, or for instance, Bharat Petroleum, or ONGC, etc. You have Finland, which is, a, and you have a lot of economies, which are essentially petro economies, right? You have uh, countries like everyone from Norway to Venezuela, to uh, um, Russia, to basically... Um, many many countries in the Arab Peninsula and so on, which are basically running their economies of this of fossil fuels, and many of these are state-run fossil fuel companies. Now, how do you plan? I mean, which is a question, right? That if these companies are state-owned companies and these companies are invested in fossil fuels, you know, you will see this in other parts here as well. Like, you know, when we are talking about, say, for instance, subsidies on petrol. Petroleum products. Removing that has been very, very unpopular, right? Any discussion of removing a petroleum subsidy, and you know, you keep hearing it in Indian media, right? Like, you know, what, what, you know, if criticism against any government is often directed on the idea that petroleum prices are going up, for instance. Now, the thing is that, you know, the kind of subsidies that we have on petroleum, and most economists basically agree that the petroleum subsidy is a wasteful subsidy. That subsidy could be saved and reinvested into other parts. For instance, you know, if you actually remove the subsidy on petroleum, 
obviously transportation costs go up if transportation costs go up that also means prices of food goes up so instead you know a lot of people suggest that you know take that great subsidy that you're putting on petroleum reinvest a, uh, some part of it into a food subsidy for instance but you know coming back to that point but just think about how unpopular the idea of rising petrol prices are even in india where we most of us are based right that mm. just tells you that you know the political will for acting on this is very little and if there is any politi- any any party or any government which actually tries to do anything against it is going to face massive backlash from the people and that is something i think people will have to contend with if you are talking about any way of addressing this issue i agree and i kind of you know if you actually look at some of the numbers i think when obama was elected in the us there was evidence that a the lobbying firms actually up to their uh, and this is the coal and gas lobbying um, mm-hmm. lobbying um, what do you call them the entire group of people the lobbyists shall we say coal and lobbyists um, yeah coal lobbies, and gas lobbyists coal and gas lobbyists actually managed to increase a tremendous amount of money to start spreading you know a lot of uh, climate denial propaganda basically uh, there was a huge uh, sort of spike in uh, i think the koch brothers in particular i remember reading mm-hmm. about this were instrumental through many different arms for persuading you know republican um, senate and congress members which you know i think when obama won actually they had a, a the democrats who did not have a majority <laughs> in the congress and senate and essentially that was so it, i i feel like you're you're seeing a backlash right the moment you have people's awareness about climate change increase the fact that it becomes an election issue the fact that you have now you know political cycles across the world where people are going to be elected they keep saying that they will address climate change you also have capitalists and their lobbying firms sort of gang up and decide to spread propaganda that we don't really have evidence about this there's no real conclusive way of saying saying that these uh, detrimental effects of climate change are going to materialize uh, it is going to have a huge effect on the middle classes or the the working class um, and these these sort of talking points start repeating in cycles and i've been very frustrated by it and i think coming back to the point that i think uh, chandu had made earlier it inevitably ends up in population control rhetoric which i have been deeply deeply disturbed by because inevitably that involves people from the global south uh people who are you know not white basically who are people of color living in in very sort of poor economies that still need to grow right um they can't stop their cycles of growth because they want to give a decent standard of living to their populations and inevitably you know you have the jane goodall types who come forward and say people you know we need to reduce the number of people in the world and you almost uh, you almost want to ask what does that mean what are you saying how are you suggesting that we reduce the population um, basically of- thanos did nothing wrong Ha uh-huh. this is I know I know mm-hmm. so for in- instance uh, and this is why I think France is interesting and this is why I can talk about America because in America there is a very uh, large percentage of the population who are climate change denialists in France uh, 96.3% believe in uh, and that the fact that climate change is happening happening 93.8% believe that the effects of climate uh, that climate change is primarily anthropogenic which is caused by humans and 73.7% believe that climate change will have catastrophic impacts mm-hmm. and this is uh, this is these are some of the highest numbers in the world by the way even even within western europe uh, the countries that have a greater proportion of people believing in climate change are basically iceland and uh, yeah i think iceland and portugal yeah no I, wow. but, but french politics is strange in in the sense that you know you will have for example 
leftist politics with certain very reactionary tendencies uh, with regards to other things. So, you know, trade unions, etc. could be conservative about issues like, for example, uh, colonial formula. Mm. Uh, one thing that was going on with the Yellow Jacket movement, which promote uh, talked about, is that not just there was resentment against what was happening with the taxes, but there was a lot of piled up resentment against Mecca and his anti-labor policy. What I'm trying to get at is that sure, yes, no matter what you do, no matter what measure you do, there would be public discomfort and there mm. would be popular opposition to it because, you know, nobody wants tomorrow to be a bit lesser than today especially in the first world where people have got used to a certain degree of comfort. Uh, but uh, it, it, it depends a lot on which administration is doing it and also on the pattern of actions against the administration. Of talk right. about I, in, I, I, uh, I think like we, we have to kind of like move on to uh, bigger debates. I just want to say two things to this. I mean, like I think both of you guys have a point. The first thing is that obviously, but uh, Macron implemented it completely wrongly because he have he gave tax breaks to the rich, which actually increased their purchasing power and they emitted more. But having said that, I still think that you there is no painless solution to this because of the fact that if you actually see the the essentially, if you want to say that we have to grow every year to a certain extent in terms of GDP, and then say like we can decouple it from like you know material consumption that's not going to be based on reality because if you actually see the absolute numbers we have seen that growth has been actually completely correlated with increased material consumption you can say that the west has actually consumed less in the past few years that's how they calculated and they say that material consumption has gone down but the reality is that this is kind of a fraudulent metric because they refuse to take into account the fact that a lot of these production has been shifted to global south Mm-hmm. And which means that shipping these things actually have uh, its own emissions, making these things, for instance, any kind of metal or plastic have, have these own emissions. So we cannot have, let's say, the, the, the sort of uh, growth we have and then say that, yeah, it's going to be normal because I think there is a huge shift. If you are going to solve this, there is only a huge shift that is required, in my opinion, that is going from saying that growth to like, yeah, discussing about well-being and happiness and being contented. So if you are not going to be ready for that, I don't think like we are we are actually facing the reality here. Yes. And uh, another thing that I'd like to point out is that, um, you know, sometimes at least in international negotiations over this, uh, you know, you tend to frame it in terms of first world versus third world concerns. Uh, one of the realities that we also have today is the fact that, you know, you, you know, that's also sometimes I think a very simplistic reduction of the problem because, for instance, like uh, Dili pointed out that it is actually the richest few who do consume far more than the bottom 49%, right, uh, who are emitting, uh, who are polluting far more than the bottom 49%. And the thing is that uh, elite is transnational. You have that elite coming Very up in true. China, you have that elite coming up in India, etc. Uh, when you tend to see this issue just in terms of one country versus another country, uh, mm-hmm. you tend to ignore the fact, like for instance, in a cup, in a few weeks from now, or a month or so from now, Delhi will again be at the point where it will be literally choking. Like this is something that happens every year, has been happening for a while. Yeah. It will be a city that will be literally choking. Part of it will be because of 
of this double burning thing that happens across Punjab and like both in Pakistan and in India and Haryana. Part of it is also due to the fact that you know people just you know use cars and movement of winds etc. That's not a particular time when you know for, from what I understand that basically. No no no, no. actually the car thing is a so uh, I mean I know this again. Uh, the, uh, Fair enough. The car thing is not really the point here. The Delhi thing is mostly due to massive construction projects which have not really been halted. Actually, the local state government did act on cars and stuff. And the public... But, yeah, but I, I, I believe when they did that odd-even rule, when the Kejriwal government did the odd-even odd rule, the readings of the emission emission readings actually did come down. But the, yeah, it did. The it problem did. But was again, that there was... Yeah, it was not a, like I said, it, it was not going to make a huge dent. The, if you really want to do something about Delhi, you will have to... Uh, no, see, like, that's, that, that's actually missing, no, so, so that's partly missing my point. Because my point is that even when you had that odd even rule thing coming along, there was a massive backlash amongst the elite of Delhi. Who basically true, but that, 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 that backlash was balanced out by, in a, it was strangely uh, somewhat popular, like uh, people started see, saying that... It might have been a strangely popular move, but at the same time, the policy doesn't exist anymore, as far as I understand. That no, which, which basically it, it doesn't because it became hard to justify it. Like, uh, like, like the justification was that it would uh, it would reduce pollution, but ultimately, like I said, in Delhi, if you want to reduce pollution, you will have to have regulations over the construction stuff, and you will have to do better negotiation with the neighboring states where the stubble burning is happening. But overall, I agree with your point. I'm see, I'm not disagreeing with your point that uh, sort of hashing this to a simplistic uh, sort of uh, you know that we can uh, get get things done, which which will essentially be popular with the majority of people and somehow manage to keep up living standards, etc. Another no, another thing that I another thing I want to like point out here that you know when we are talking. Talking another point that was raised by people in the Marshall Islands that this is basically climate genocide. Mm-hmm. Even within the context of India, if you come to think about it, a lot of the exploitation, etc., that has been, for instance, the coal mines, etc., these are in certain belts of India. Now, let me just put it out there I do not subscribe to this notion that uh, certain groups considered primitive by uh, uh, certain colonial and post colonial state structures are essentially in any way more virtuous with regards to the use of the environment than say we are but at the same time i will say this that you know uh, there have been ad hoc justification for the expansion of mines for the acquisition of land in these areas on the pretext of industrialization and overall development which have also had a massive environmental impact and sometimes in terms of a massively expanding carbon footprint for instance coal mines right steel mm. mines and these factories that have been created all over india uh, whom do these things actually directly benefit it's actually not the locals because the locals if you actually think about it uh, you know all these left-wing ra- radical leftist movements that have happened here have been very very opposed to this kind of resource exploitation and uh, you know develop development projects that have been happening that the Indian state has been pushing or the state governments have been pushing in these areas. Um, in that sense, uh, you know, 
we also tend to ignore that even a lot of these development projects that we talk about and you know when we simplistically reduce it to a question of first world development versus third world development we also tend to ignore um you know certain things that you know sometimes it's it's not like the entire you know sometimes the most marginalized people in the third world don't actually actually oppose this kind of development secondly like you know you people talk a lot about greta thunberg at uh, you know going and talking at the united nations and you know they try tend to fixate on her because she is this uh, a white european from um, from a very prosperous social democracy coming and quote unquote lecturing people on climate change but they also tend to ignore that there was someone else, there were other people there as well there were other children there as well so someone who actually was from brazil right indigenous young people across the world have been doing it for yes. a while yeah yes and and, and um, one of the speakers who was just after her was from brazil and she was mm. talking about brazil like uh, there was this um, and interestingly i saw that posted that article posted on um, social media uh, and it was actually from the mrs institute which if people know mrs institute is basically a libertarian right wing libertarian institute which was basically saying that you know people like greta thunberg basically just want the third world to remain poor and they and he, because greta thunberg and the you know the pe- people who were there they were basically uh, talking about brazil a lot and the fact that you know the uh, brazil was engaging in massive you know uh, deforestation in the amazon using controlled fires um, mm-hmm. and uh, these indigenous activists had actually pointed and it it was not a demand that greta thunberg had come up with herself it's something that the indigenous activists were talking about themselves yeah another point that i'd like to point out is that the reason these things are happening in brazil uh, to a large extent is because of two main commodities soybean and uh, basically ranching i mean like for um, the production of meat right mm. and you know we talk a lot about you know consum- you know when you talk about consumption we have to realize that you know this is also linked to our patterns of consumption and i've seen people becoming especially i'm not talking about people in india in this case i'm actually mm. talking about people in america etc and they've become they become very very defensive when you farming for the sake of producing meat being a major problem mm. there's a massive resistance to this idea and people will be people just want to eat their hamburgers or whatever but you know we also have to i, I think you should practice. elaborate here why did you differentiate india and america yes because in india you know in india india is actually one of the least um, meat eating nations i mean like by per capita consumption of meat india is one of the least Uh, i think only bangladesh is lower than it at this point in the consumption mm. of um, chicken i mean like not fish but like meat in general per cap on a per capita basis and, and america is one because, of sorry i was just going to say it's not just because of poverty alone which i think a lot of people want yeah, to say obviously, obviously, obviously it's 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 also because of certain uh, cultural norms some caste norms etc yeah, um, yeah. Uh, but uh, But the thing is uh, in the americas now i'm not just talking about the usa there is a there is a massive demand for meat in say brazil and argentina and uruguay which and yeah. chile the three foremost the four biggest economies in latin america uh, along with mexico uh, so you know if we don't address that we need to also address this that you know there are, and this consumption of meat and sorry i was going and, to say that you're talking about consumption as telling people to just reduce demand i think it's also talking about the scale of industrial farming animal farming no, no, i am i am because yeah. i yeah i am because the thing is that uh, 
this is not a consumption if we actually go back 50 60 years or even 100 years we won't see this level of meat consumption in one most families this is yeah. a thing that is very recent and it is a very very cultural thing that has been you know you know linking the consumption of meat to prosperity etc yes and yes. so on these are there are cultural factors to this as well i'm not just saying that this is something that is uh, i mean demand does come from somewhere it is not something that is open and like comes out of nowhere obviously but mm-hmm. yes we have to understand that but this de- that demand being a very big issue which is driving this thing is also important like, so, yeah right i'll i'll just finish with like three points before uh, you guys can go on the the thing is that if you want to talk about emitters and taxing within countries or across countries and so on and so forth there is a great paper called as carbon inequality from kyoto to paris by thomas piketty so that's really a nice mm-hmm. paper where it, yeah. the, one of the conclusions is that he makes is that a real option is actually having country wide taxes instead of like you know there are also possibility for global taxes for instance like taxing aviation and people using first class like shit so like that that's a possibility but also like imposing country wide taxes within on the top emitters is also like really an effective strategy is what he shows but mm-hmm. th- there are like his conclusions are still conservative i would say but it it shows the way that we have to go that's one of the things the second thing that i want to really emphasize that we actually missed is that so look we are going to have a 2 degree celsius world at least nevertheless okay that's already horrible and we are talking about hundreds of millions of people's life at stake especially a global south and at this point to talk about closed borders for financial or economic reasons makes no sense because it's it's literally people have to migrate people have to go from zones where the crops are dying people have to go from zones where they are going to be having cities under ocean so to talk about closed borders at this point of time it's like it's clearly immoral in my opinion so that's yes. that's the second thing the, the uh, right so the, the third thing that i wanted to talk about i don't know if we have time is that one of the things that these people especially the techno accelerationists and the techno optimists portrays that bccs the bioenergy carbon capture and storage the geoengineering can actually save us and mm. you you really have to look into it so that i will really cut it short so three points first is that this is clearly done to you know like kind of hide the uh, facts in plain sight because by saying that oh we can actually capture it back it derails the effort that we are going to put together now like transforming into clean energy or like having real wealth tax number one second mm. two is that we have like three plans actually in demonstration and the technology is not there to say that we can scale up to 16000 plants at some point of time is time is like like you know like literal uh, insanity that you know the ccs has so many issues and primary uh, primarily the issue is that you have to actually burn a lot of biomass to actually build the plants which means like completely stopping irrigation and like uh, you know like uh, crop growing in so many plates and if you are going to have i say this seriously because all ipcc you know scenarios have ccs as upper and lower bound uh, you know in many upper bound cases that they are saying that oh we can't stop to stop 2 degrees celsius we are going to have at least this amount of ccs and that amount of ccs is actually having a larger sink of capture carbon capture which means like a larger area that is required for carbon capturing than what we already have now in the entire planet so this ccs is some 
enormous topic. So if you are going to talk about reasonable solutions, one of them, in my opinion, is huge amount of health tax and wealth redistribution inside and across countries. Second is actually having these budgets of, we have 400 gigatons of carbon dioxide budget. So the majority of this has to go to the global south for their own development. The, you know, the third thing is like, we can think about so many different solutions, whether we can go to different forms of renewable energy or, or the other things like regenerative farming, where we actually, you know, the topsoil is already completely degraded. It has lost its capacity to actually act as a carbon sink. So if we can actually regenerate the capacity of the soil to actually capture back the carbon, that, that would solve enormous amount of you know problems. And as we can tackle you know, time-bound issues like methane emissions and NOx emissions using some sort of innovative uh, uh, technologies. But the essential point is that even after doing all this, we have to realize that we cannot live like the way we are going to we are actually going on right now the only way is transformatively think about it from going from you know like spending this much on so much of stuffs to actually completely focus our life on being happy and you know our own well-being in terms of healthcare and uh, learning through education and so on and so forth these are the only possible options that are going to be left to us one thing i'd like to just point out here is that there is a very good article by a very controversial blogger which I think people should really read. Yeah, Freddie DeBoer. Freddie DeBoer. Cited. Clearly. Yes. So, so uh, Freddie DeBoer, whom some people, some of our audience might know as a very controversial blogger, has an article he wrote recently, a small blog post. But, and he basically talks about uh, being realistic about climate change. And it's that we aren't going to stop climate climate change from happening but uh, at the same time um, you know we are we, many of us are going to like try and change it but you know to be very realistic the kind of mobilization that we need like you know Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez they are talking about a green new deal but it's more appropriate to basically make a comparison with a world war right mm. and the kind of time kind of mobilization that you need to keep uh, climate change at quote-unquote safe levels or even manage it to around 2 degrees Celsius is something that will require mobilization at that scale. And secondly, uh, it will require a coordination amongst different nation states that is basically unheard of in humanity. Right. And that is actually why, you know, you know, I think, you know, most of us, a lot of us are very, very pessimistic about what will happen in the future. I actually want that, to but... say something to that because, you know, I've been unusually quiet in today's episode anyway. And, <laughs> yes, yes. Know, I think that deserves a response because ultimately politics is the art of the possible and we are nothing but a political podcast. We are not a scientific podcast, though all of us have a scientific bent of mind. Um, I do not like thinking like that because, you know, in, in, with, in, in a long enough arc of the future, we all die. So, why do anything? I mean, seriously, do not, anything. Not where I expected it to go. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but, uh, uh, but if we are going to be doing something, then we have to sort of, like, we have to make certain that our plans are political like it's it's fine enough to say that this needs to be done and that needs to be done and none of it is ever going to happen if, if, if it does not translate into political reality mm. so uh, i agree with the 
focused on essentially class relations that this is not happening without massive redistribution that is one thing i agree with actually uh, and i think that is at the core of this issue that you want to tackle demand you want to tackle culture you want to tackle transnational elite you want to tackle uh, within countries uh, expropriation of uh, native areas by local elites etc a lot of it not all of it but a lot of it ties down to class relations a lot of it ties down to left politics so while yes within left movements also uh, i i don't disagree with pramod that within left movements also there is going to be a resistance to unpopular uh, hard decisions quote and quote but i am always uh, sort of wary of who does hard decisions affect first and is is your hard decision thing going to correlate with responsibility of having created the mess in the first place and uh, hence i think that even if it's a little bit whatever we can do is going to come out of politics so uh, the things we have talked about do try to see how those could be translated to your local political movements and it's not as if those movements don't exist or have not existed for a while of course there is a current recently revived popular Uh, stuff going around but these things have always been a part of left wing politics and uh, often there is wrong headed utopianism which comes with some of it for example you know there are people who would uh, defend uh, some of the actions of global south countries which pollute the environment and they would say that oh but you know th- these are not imperialist countries and of course you have to be evolved enough as a leftist to 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 call out bullshit when you see it essentially mm-hmm. and uh, however i do think that uh, it's necessary that we give it our best i do think that uh, there is really no point in pessimism i i don't think we can afford it frankly i mean we are all going to die anyway just think of it like that and continue to work towards that continue <laughs> to try to build a consensus towards that we are all useless people we are all idiots essentially and um if you can internalize that properly then you can work towards this without uh, having grandiose aims of victory or whatever but also be very wary of people who would be trying to push the responsibility of doing all these hard decision on the world's poor dilip mentioned that you know uh, we cannot even afford to think about close borders right now but unfortunately there is a significant part of i wouldn't call it the left wing but certain kinds of social democratic movements in in the west especially who are going to look at it from a close border perspective who are going to say that we would want to protect our people first there is going to be a part of the global right wing especially in the west which would try to co-opt uh, worker rhetoric and sort of try to advocate closed borders using the climate change Uh, thing to fear monger in fact certain mm-hmm. if i am not incorrect certain posters and speakers were seen in the recent climate strikes which were yeah. trying to invoke anti anti immigration rhetoric right so mm-hmm. uh, either we save the world for everybody or we don't get to save it because unfortunately climate change doesn't care about borders that is something people have to keep in mind be very wary of politicians who would use climate change as a fear mongering tactic and as a tool to otherize uh, populations which are either within your country but have been traditional scapegoats or have been uh, 
essentially marginalized or or are essentially uh, refugees from other countries uh, i'm sorry to say but i've started to see the uh, like this climate change thing being weaponized even against anti refugee rhetoric in india so something we have to be very careful of so my parting words would be that yes there is a lot of reason to be extremely concerned and it would be irrational to have you know uh, sort of unrealistic and utopic plans but it's also necessary that you keep planning and it's also necessary that you applaud concrete political action when it where it appears and it will and you should try to instigate such actions locally wherever you may be that's my take i completely agree uh, the, the only last word that i want to say is that this is actually an emergency so if we can internalize that a lot of actions can spring from it Now, however much we can do we are, we have to try but this is an emergency agreed seconded all of you are very smart and said some very smart things <laughs> that's literally it. yeah so yeah so you just heard me and all of our co- all of my co panelists talk about climate change i hope that was an interesting discussion uh please follow us on twitter follow us on soundcloud we are about to become uh, india's most popular leftist podcast so like just push us over the line please and do pay us money on patreon because you know we are producing this content for you and everything so we'd like to get something in return for that anyway thanks thank you and signing off bye 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 bye